says in verse 9, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into an upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And Father, we just humbly pause and ask now for the aid and help of your Holy Spirit as we continue in our worship by opening the very word of God as an act of submission to what you would want to speak to each and every one of us. So Lord, help us this morning. We pray you'd take away the distractions in our heart and soul and mind that you'd strengthen and invigorate us, Lord, physically and spiritually to be able to receive what the voice of your spirit would want to say to us personally through the word of God this morning. Lord, we pray now that you'd bless your word, that we wouldn't hear wise or persuasive words of a man, but each experience the demonstration of your spirit and power speaking something directly to us in our heart this day. Minister to us and bless your word, we ask expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I have found that when the outlook at times is concerning, that on those occasions particularly, it's always helpful to take the uplook. And the text that we're going to look at this morning really reminds us that looking up is always helpful. Whether it's looking up for the return of Jesus, whether it's looking up in prayer and seeking the Lord, it is always helpful to take the uplook. Now, the backdrop, just remember as we come to verse 9 in Acts 1 here, according to plan, our Lord Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He was buried. The Bible tells us he rose again the third day back to life. And Luke has told us in the beginning of the book of Acts that then for the next 40 days, that is for over a month after Jesus had risen back to life from the dead, that he spent the next 40 days, Luke said, appearing and presenting himself alive to his disciples. That is, he kept making routine appearances where he'd step back out of the spiritual dimension and back into the temporal realm and he would demonstrate that he was alive. He was giving, the Bible says, many convincing proofs to assure the disciples that he was very much alive. Though they didn't see him with the physical eye, that he was still alive, that he was still in their midst, and he would eat with them, he'd share meals together, he'd have conversations with them, he'd embrace them. And really, during those 40 days, Luke tells us as well, he was also continuing to educate them. It says that he was speaking to them pertaining things regarding the kingdom of God, that is spiritual kingdom matters. We saw particularly in verses 4 through 8 that during one of the last, if not perhaps the last 
appearance or meeting that Jesus had with his disciples that in Acts 1 verse 4 to 8 Jesus there perhaps the very last time he met with them said to them not to depart from Jerusalem but to wait for the promise of the father which he had told them about and he said to them that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now and that they would receive power as the Holy Spirit came upon them to be his effective witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. That is, they were the weight upon the Lord. They weren't to go yet. Yes, they were called to ministry. Yes, they had been trained. They've been educated. But Jesus said that training, that education is not enough. You need power from heaven. You need anointing from the Spirit of God, which I'm going to send to you, he said, where you'll be clothed with power and they'd be enabled supernaturally to fulfill their ministry effectively so that they would be influential and have impact as they serve the Lord. It's now with that backdrop, verse 9, look with me in the text. It continues by saying, now when Jesus had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight and while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as Jesus went up behold two men stood by him in white apparel who said men of Galilee why do you stand gazing up into heaven this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven now these events here describe for us what we refer to as the ascension of the Lord Jesus the time when Jesus ascended back into heaven it is important to emphasize back into heaven remember Jesus being eternally existent as the eternal son of God Jesus has always existed as God's son dwelling in the heavenly realm before creation ever came to pass having come from heaven originally and the father then sending him into this earth for a set time period Jesus took to himself a second nature humanity a human nature adding humanity to his deity he came sent by the father to this earth being born as a man living among us to fulfill his mission to save humanity we now see at the culmination of that verses 9 through 11 here Jesus returning back to heaven from whence he originally came to once again go back to the throne of God and be together with his father once again now as we look at this first of all take note with me kind of how it happened verse 9 tells us there in the text that after Jesus had spoken these final things that is those instructions about waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit upon them it says there that while the disciples watched that is this was taking place with them being eyewitnesses they actually had this experience spiritually with the Lord seeing him rise back into heaven that Jesus was taken up into heaven drawn back now Luke 24 which is very helpful gives us a few additional details regarding the ascension account Luke tells us that Jesus led them out as far as Bethany lifted up his hands it says and blessed them and it came to pass that while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven and then of course the end of verse 9 there says that as he's going up into heaven a cloud received him out of their sight now now can I just make mention for a minute here's kind of what happened picture the scene if you would we know from verse 12 of Acts chapter 1 that this is happening on the Mount of Olives. 
Uh, We know from Luke's account, as I just mentioned, that what Jesus does is he leads them out to a unique location, Bethany, there on the Mount of Olives. And as they're all standing around, listening to Jesus speak these final words, and then he starts to pronounce a blessing over them, as he starts pronouncing this blessing over them, that's when he starts to ascend. But can I just say, by way of taking note, how beautiful to take note in the Bible, the ascension of Jesus, that the last act of Jesus during his final day on earth, Luke's account tells us, is that he was blessing his disciples as he was parting from them, his last act going back up into heaven. And I think to myself, what a beautiful thing. Jesus' last act, his final day on earth, was to bless his followers, to impart grace to them. to to be helpful and gracious. And to me, that reveals the heart of Jesus towards those of us who are his servants and his followers, that he desires, he wants to bless you. He desires to be gracious to you, to show kindness and favor, to help you. The Lord Jesus does not want to relate to you like a harsh or a strict police officer or a cruel judge that's just looking for you to make a mistake somehow. No, No, that's the furthest thing from the truth, especially in light of what he's accomplished for you and I. Taking the punishment on the cross for our sins and bringing victory for our lives. Jesus wants to relate to you more like a gracious big brother who is the most powerful king in the universe, who is benevolent and kind. Listen, he forgave our sin and failures. He loves you greatly and he wants to bless you. The Bible says that he's the same yesterday, today and forever. And the last act before he ascends up into heaven, the Bible says, is he's blessing his disciples. And I believe Jesus hasn't changed. He wants to bless you. He wants to shower his grace upon you. It tells us that when he blessed them, it was at that point after blessing them, he's now parted up and carried up into heaven. I think the disciples no doubt sense that this departure is different than any departure has been so far. He's been coming and going, but this time they sense, okay, this isn't just a disappearance and he's going to come back. They clearly sense this is the culmination here. This is the conclusion of his presence with us in a body amongst us physically. And as they're watching, it tells us here, verse 9, that as they watched, Jesus was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. So as they're watching, again, if you can kind of illustrate in your mind, sort of, it's kind of like if you've ever had like a helium balloon, right? And you let one of those helium balloons go and then you watch it as it ascends and it goes up into the atmosphere and it just becomes smaller and smaller and smaller, right? And then eventually it just kind of vanishes out of your sight. And that's kind of the idea here. As Jesus is going up, they're watching and it says, then a verse nine cloud received him out of their sight. That is, he just fully disappeared ultimately. Now, can I just mention, I don't think that that was an atmospheric cloud that really enveloped and took Jesus away. I don't think it was, what are they called, you know, cumulus clouds or cirrus clouds or whatever else we can remember from science class. I think that that was the glory cloud of the presence of God. You remember in the Old Testament, oftentimes God manifested himself in a cloud of glory and it tells us that that glory cloud represented the presence of God as they journey through the wilderness. Exodus chapter 40 describes that reality, how God would manifest himself in the glory cloud of his presence. Matthew 17 says that when Jesus was transfigured there on the mountain that day, 
It tells us that it was at that point God showed his divine approval there again with a glory cloud. Again, a representation of the presence of God. So I think this is that same glory cloud of God's presence, the heavenly cloud, as Jesus now passes from one dimension into the next dimension, as he passes now into the dimension of back into the heavenly dwelm with the presence of his father. And again, approving, receiving Jesus as he enters into heaven's dimension, I think it's sort of the welcome home as he passes through that glory cloud. Now, before we move onward here and continue to talk about our, our verses, let me, if I could, pause for just a minute briefly to describe, and I think it's critical, what the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ back into heaven to the throne of God means for all of us. Because oftentimes, right, we talk a lot about the crucifixion. Oftentimes we talk a lot about the resurrection, and these are important fundamental things. But we need to remember that the ascension of Jesus Christ is also very, very important and fundamental to our spiritual lives. The ascension of the Lord Jesus proves that the Father is fully satisfied with the work of the Lord Jesus Christ for the sin of humanity. The ascension validates this. The Father has accepted what Jesus accomplished judicially. He is satisfied with the wrath that God as a holy God would feel towards the sin of humanity. God is appeased. Judicially, he is fully satisfied. That's why we read, and I think particularly, take note of the language, that's why we read in our text here, it says there, Jesus was taken up into heaven. You read that multiple times. It doesn't say necessarily that he went up. It says he was taken up. And then it also describes that he was received into heaven. The language indicates the father showing his approval. The father showing his approval of Jesus takes him back up into heaven. He receives Jesus back to heaven from where Jesus originally was. And I think the father in taking up and receiving Jesus was no doubt indicating his approval and his acceptance of everything that Jesus did while he was on earth. It was the father's way of validating, I accept his work, his offering is received, and so therefore I now take him back to the presence of, of the heavenly realm where he once was, and again he was seated at the right hand of the father at heaven's throne. Ephesians 1 tells us this, the father raised Christ from the dead and has seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above principality and power and might and dominion and he has put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church in Philippians Paul says very similar in chapter 2 Philippians he says therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth that at the time every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, again, so important. The Father has given Jesus all authority. He's given him the right hand of the throne of God and put everything under his feet and given Jesus to be the head of the church because Jesus is the only one that's solely worthy of that. Because of what he fulfilled for us as the God-man coming and being the perfect mediator on our behalf and how wonderful to know that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father and he and the Father are fully satisfied. That, it, that it's, it's completed. 
that, that nothing in our spiritual life, listen, is dependent anyway if our faith is in Christ. It's not dependent upon our performance. It's dependent upon what Jesus performed, what Jesus accomplished, living sinless, dying sacrificially, pouring out his life and shedding his blood and raising again on the third day and ascending back to the right hand of the Father so that he and the Father are satisfied. And all we need to do now is believe upon it and trust in it for ourselves. And, and the ascension of Jesus assures us it is well with our soul that we can rest, that the Father is satisfied. You know, Jesus' ascension also into heaven was important for the total accomplishment of his ministry because Jesus ascending into heaven is also what allowed him to do what? To then send the Holy Spirit, the helper, the third person of the Trinity, to now come and dwell inside of you and I as Christians permanently to be that permanent, present helper inside of you in your relationship with God. It's Jesus' ascension that let the Holy Spirit come to fulfill this ministry for us. And Jesus' ascension also allows him to then function as our intercessor at the right hand of God the Father. That Jesus is there, Hebrews 7 and Romans 8 tell us, that he is now our advocate for when we sin and fail. He is the one there as our intercessor to supply grace and help to defeat sin and overcome sin. We have a living Savior, a risen Lord. The one who we follow is not buried in a grave. He is alive and available and accessible and there to help. And this is all because of not only his death and his resurrection, but also because of his ascension that he has ascended back to heaven where he is and things are accomplished. The ends are tied up, if you would. Notice how in verse 10, the disciples responded to experiencing the ascension of Christ into heaven. Verse 10 says that while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up. Again, God graciously included the disciples, his followers, in this spiritual experience of Jesus ascending back up into heaven and he let them experience this and the outcome of this spiritual experience that they had that they I think is worth observing what does it say in verse 10 there their eyes were fixed on the Lord and their attention and focus it says is that they were looking toward heaven and can I just say by way of application I think whenever God grants us on occasion a spiritual experience that's always the intention of God when we have a spiritual experience that when we have a spiritual experience just like them here that our eyes would be fixed upon the Lord that we would see more about who Jesus is that's what they were doing they, they looked steadfastly their eyes were fixed on Jesus and you bet your bottom dollar that day more than ever they were saying whoa he's more than we ever imagined and, and, and in a whole fresh way, the glory and greatness of the Lord Jesus was impressed upon. Their eyes were fixed on Jesus. And I think when we have a spiritual experience, that's where our focus should be. If you have a genuine experience with God, your focus should not be on your experience or how it made you feel, the willies that you got. It should be on, wow, I saw something about Jesus. And in such a way that your attention is upon the Lord and your explanation of it is about the Lord and that your heart would, like their heart, be more attached to heaven. It says they look toward heaven. 
That when you have an spiritual experience with God, your attention on what's eternal and heavenly should be all the more locked in as you realize those realities. Well, notice what happens next as they're looking up, verse 10. The text goes on to say, Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. So uh, two men are there, and as they're standing there, it says they say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will also come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So notice, a prophecy is now given by two angels. A prophecy is revealed in the midst of this process of Jesus' ascension. Two men in white apparel, we know is a description of angels because we many a times read of angels in the Gospels and other places appearing in that same form. Men in brilliant white glory and so forth. And notice what these angels do there in verse 11. They ask a question to kind of try and awaken these shocked and astonished disciples who are there watching this whole event. They say to him, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? Now, again, put yourself in their sandals for a minute. Understandably, they're overwhelmed by this experience. This is, we just read the Bible. Look, we need to realize this is a phenomenal experience that they're having. On top of that, keep in mind, their minds aren't just being blown. They're probably a little shell-shocked because they're realizing Jesus is really leaving now. That for the final time, they can tell this is it. This is the culmination. He is departing from us. And again, the disciples had spent three years with Jesus they had grown very close to Jesus. They had become very dependent upon the Lord. He taught them everything. He took care of everything. When a problem arised, he resolved it. When they had a need, he provided it. So they're very dependent upon Jesus. And now Jesus is departing. And you might fairly say, this was a major transition in their lives. This was a major, major transition in their lives. And they're somewhat in a state of shock and they probably have even some questions and concerns about their future. And, and, and so they're just standing there, just overwhelmed in a state of shock. And, and again, perhaps you can relate because maybe there's been a time in your life to some degree when you underwent a major transition in your life. And kind of like the disciples, you find yourself kind of stunned, just kind of stargazing forward because... This major transition has happened and kind of the reality sets in. You know, maybe you, you had that experience after you had a child the first time and you realized, wow, I guess that's going to stay on the outside and we're going to have to take care of that now. <laughs> and just in nine months, it's been a reality, but all of a sudden, boom, the, the transition happens. Now the baby's born. That's a major transition. And sometimes when we go through a major transition, right, we, we kind of walk it out. But when the transition itself kind of happens and boom, then it finally takes place, you kind of find yourself a little shocked. And you're kind of just like gazing, you know, into space. And you're kind of just sort of numb and shocked because you're, you're somewhat paralyzed. And I love what the angels do. They say to them, men of Galilee, why, why are you gazing up into heaven? I kind of sense what the angels are doing here as these men are in shock. They're kind of trying to wake them up. They're saying, hey, snap out of it. W w wake up. Come back to reality. You're stunned, but you can't just stand there forever doing nothing. You got to move forward now. 
The transition has happened. You need to move forward. Jesus told you that this was going to take place and the Lord's plan is unfolding and you need to embrace it now. You need to adjust. The Lord has brought about this transition. It's a new season. And sometimes I think when the Lord's plan unfolds, we, we kind of find ourselves like the disciples. We, we maybe kind of need to be prompted back to reality and realize that we have to embrace the transition now. We can't just stand there staring to the wall going, what did I get myself into? What, what, is, what is happening? We have to say, no, th- th- this is a new season. And I need to embrace it now. This is what the Lord said was going to happen and now it's come to pass. And it's at this point the angels give this wonderful promise. They reiterate a promise of Jesus to give some additional light to it as well. They say this same Jesus who was taken up, verse 11, into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Again, remember Jesus promised the disciples in John 14 saying in my father's house are many mansions and if it were not so I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you and if I go and prepare a place for you I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. So Jesus had already given them this promise that he would come back that he would return a second time and the disciples at this moment understandably they're feeling a little concerned. They have some apprehensions. This is a major transition. They just saw Jesus be taken away from them up into heaven. And I love this. These angelic messengers come from heaven and they encourage and assure them. How? With the Lord's return. They say to them to comfort them in their concern. That same Jesus will come again in like manner even as you saw him go up into heaven. Listen, Jesus promised and the Bible teaches that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. That even as he came once, just as surely he is coming back a second time. Yet the return of the Lord, we have to understand, really kind of happens in two main stages, if you would, or or two phases, however you want to refer to it, two events. First, Jesus comes for his church or for his followers. And then Jesus comes with his followers or with his church the return of jesus the coming again of jesus first of all jesus comes for his church for his followers that is he appears in the air the bible says to draw us home into heaven we often call this the rapture or the catching away of the saints first thessalonians 4 verse 16 and 17 says for the lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain, that's you and I, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. So when we think about the coming of the Lord, the return of the Lord, certainly the first thing will happen is there is this event, the catching away of the saints, the raptures, we often refer to it, an event where true Christians, genuine believers who are spirit, you know, indwelt, who are born again of the spirit, people who are followers of Christ and God knows who those are and who those aren't. Genuine believers at that moment will be forcibly and instantaneously snatched off of the earth. Jesus will appeal in the air and Jesus will snatch us off of this planet and draw us home into heaven. And at any moment, we could be snatched away 
by the Lord. Once we are safely removed from the earth in that rapture experience, then a seven-year period of tribulation begins to unfold upon this earth where God fulfills a final seven-year period with the nation of Israel, working among them uniquely as a nation. Jesus in that time will righteously judge the Christ-rejecting world those who have refused him as savior and in their sin and rebellion and there will be a time of great chaos and suffering and judgment on this earth that has never existed before we as believers my personal conviction will be tucked away safely in heaven with jesus enjoying time with him enjoying the marriage supper of the lamb because we have already been removed from the wrath of God because we trusted that Jesus bore the wrath of God upon the cross. I have a hard time believing that God would punish Jesus and then say, mm, that wasn't enough. I need to punish you a little more now. To me, that questions the sufficiency of Jesus bearing the full wrath of God. And it is the wrath of God that's poured out during the time of the tribulation, the Bible says. So we will be in heaven during that period because Jesus has come for us. But then at the end of that seven-year period, when we talk about the coming of Christ, the return of Christ, there is another event, really what we often might want to call the second coming of Christ, when Jesus comes with his church and he actually comes back, not in the air, but actually to the earth itself. And he touches down upon the earth and he overthrows the Antichrist and all of rebellion that's happening and sets up his kingdom on this earth and you and I are with him we've returned with him as his followers glorified saints where Jesus will then rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years now interesting in verse 11 that as these angels talk about the return of the Lord and the coming of Christ they give a little bit of interesting insight regarding the return of the Lord. You notice particularly the language in verse 11. It says that Jesus will come again, look at the language, in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, just like you saw him go into heaven, he will come in like manner the exact same way. Now question, how did Jesus go into heaven that day at the ascension? Well, a few things. He entered into heaven literally, visibly, bodily he was received into a cloud of glory and listen all of those things will be true when jesus comes again in the same manner jesus departed literally bodily the bible teaches jesus is returning literally bodily not in spirit but he will return in his glorified eternal body to come back and to rule and reign physically on this earth as a king of kings Jesus also departed, as we saw, in a cloud of glory. It says, while the disciples watched, they saw him with their very eyes ascending up into heaven. Revelation 1.7 says this of the coming of the Lord. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. It's interesting in verse 12 as well, it tells us where we read there that Jesus departed that day in his ascension from the Mount of Olives. And the Bible prophesies in the second coming and the return of the Lord that he will return. And when he touches back down to earth, guess where he's going to touch down? The Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14 says in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east and the Mount of Olives will be split in two. Look, one of the main doctrines, the early believers, the early church believed and held tightly to 
was the return of the Lord Jesus, expecting him to come back. That's what they found comfort in, in their hardships. That's what motivated them to live the way that they did. That's what prompted them to serve. And for you and I, the same is very important for us. As a present modern day church, we need to hold tightly to the doctrine of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that will have a profound impact on the way that we live and the way that we don't live. It should have a profound impact upon our motivation to serve and and help us to be comforted in hardship. Jesus said in Luke 21, now when these things begin to happen, look up, lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Again, look around, look at the word of God, the signs, the evidences, the the indicators symptomatically of what the Bible teaches would be happening before the return of the Lord are all over the place. And Jesus says, when you begin to see these things, look up, lift up your heads, your redemption draws near. Again, we read Mark 13 and Matthew 24 where Jesus continuously emphasizes about his return to be ready. He said, therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. And again, if we stay sensitive to the reality of Jesus returning, that will influence our outlook. Because sometimes the outlook's a mess, right? I don't know what's going on in your life right now, but maybe there are things in your outlook. You go, okay, the outlook, that's a little concerning. I'm a little concerned about this. Or maybe the outlook is, is bleak or the outlook is hard. And it, the outlook doesn't look, that's okay. Jesus is coming. And you just keep taking one day at a time and know that at any moment Jesus could just hit the stop button and you're out of here. And I'm not saying be lazy and run up your credit card and don't pay your bill. That's not what I'm saying. (laughs) What I'm saying is, is that it helps to endure when you know that the finish line's near, right? I play sports, you play sports, and you're tired, and you're hurt, and, you're, and then you oh, there's only so much time left on the clock, and there's something, right? I, I can tell the clock's ticking down, I can push, I can push a little bit longer, because the clock's ticking, and then it helps us to be comforted, it motivates us to live the way that we should, instead of, you know, foolishly, and getting entangled in the things of this world, and again, they, they impress that upon the disciples, because they have a lot in front of them, and we need to hold tightly to that same belief that our Lord is returning. Verse 12 says, After this, they then returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. So they now depart from the Mount of Olives, journey back to Jerusalem. A Sabbath day journey is about 3,000 feet or about a half mile. So they leave from Mount of Olives, they go back to Jerusalem. And again, going back to Jerusalem was what? A reflection of their obedience to Jesus' command. Remember, that's what he told them. Don't depart from Jerusalem Wait for the promise of the Spirit of God. Now, that will be fulfilled in 10 days at Pentecost. We'll read about it in Acts chapter 2. And the rest of chapter 1 in the book of Acts really records for us, if it matters to you, kind of what happened during the 10-day gap between Jesus' ascension back into heaven and before the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. It tells us what was taking place in that 10-day gap between Jesus' ascension and the Spirit being poured out at Pentecost. It says that they went back to Jerusalem. What again was in Jerusalem? That's where the temple of God was. And interesting, Luke tells us in chapter 24, in his account, that after Jesus ascended up into heaven, 
It says the disciples worshipped him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. That is, as the disciples waited upon the Lord for those 10 days, for what's the next step, what's the next season, as they were in sort of a holding pattern waiting upon the Lord, they spent a lot of time worshipping. They spent a lot of time with God's people and in God's house worshiping. And let me just say, that's always a really wise thing to do. If the Lord's got you in a holding pattern, there's no better way you can spend your time than worshiping. Because as we spend time with the people of God and being in the house of God and worshiping the Lord, it's a wonderful way to get our hearts sensitive to the things of the Spirit. Notice what else they were doing. Verse 13 and 14 tell us. It says, when they entered, they then went up into the upper room where they were staying Peter, James, John, the mention of the 11 disciples there remaining. Verse 14, and these all continued with, notice, one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brother. So here we see what else they did in that holding pattern time. They assembled and spent time doing what? Praying together. It says there in verse 13, they went back to the upper room where they were staying. Now, we don't know if that's the same room where Jesus shared Passover and instituted the Lord's Supper with the disciples. Could be. It's that same spot where they gathered. Regardless, it's a room where these believers apparently could quietly meet and they would assemble together in order to seek God there. It was their gathering place where they would come together and seek God and pray together. And I see this beautiful example how these believers, I love this, they wanted to assemble together. They wanted to assemble. Nobody told them to assemble. They were assembling because they wanted to. They wanted to be together as spiritual family and seek God. We're told, verse 13 there, that Peter, James, John, the 11 disciples Jesus chose, they're gathered. It also says there that in verse 14 uh, that the women were gathering together there just generally with the women. And again, that's probably a reference to women like Mary Magdalene, Salome, Mary of Bethany, uh, who anointed Jesus' feet in the Gospels. The other women, the Bible says many women followed Jesus and ministered to him and his disciples as they were going around. It also says there that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. That is his birth mother. And also, verse 14 says, they were also there with his, that's Jesus' brothers. And Mark chapter 6 tells us that Jesus did have half-siblings. That is, same mother, different father. Jesus' father being God, Mary being his mother, but his half-siblings, Mark 6, says that he had brothers and sisters, it names them, that is after Mary gave birth to Jesus, the, the virgin birth, that her and Joseph had normal relations. She wasn't a perpetual virgin. They had normal relations, and they had other children. And these are some of them who were assembled there. We're told in verse 15, when we get there next week, that at this point, the number of disciples is about 120. So here they are in this upper room and notice what they're doing. It says, verse 14, what they're doing. They all continued with one accord in prayer and supplications. I'll take, to take note of that word there, one accord. You might want to circle that, underline it. That will become a repeated phrase in the book of Acts regarding these believers. It pictures togetherness. It pictures unity and harmony in spirit, people of one soul, one heart, one mind, knit together with a common shared cause. It's interesting that the Greek that's used there for one accord 
it literally is a term that speaks of how different instruments and voices would work together in harmony in a song. That's the idea there. Harmony of different voices and instruments. Again, if you think of that in an in a orchestra or a, a choir singing together or a musical group, each one making different contributions, distinct contributions, yet it's all contributing in a complementary way for everybody to all move in the same direction with the song that they're singing or the music that they're playing. There's this beautiful harmony. This Again, no one's trying to do a solo. It's a group effort where in one accord, they're each offering their part. And we see in the early church that they lived and they worshipped and they served and they prayed in one accord. In this harmonious way, yes, there were differences among people. Yes, they had uniqueness, but there was a togetherness and a sharing. They functioned interdependently, seeking to, in a harmonious way, move things in the same direction. And particularly, the Bible tells us here, one thing they did in one accord is it says they continued in one accord in prayer and supplication. That is in communicating with God, asking in humble, dependent faith, God, we need your power. We need your provision. Lord, we need direction. We need help. We need your intervention, Lord. We're asking you to work. And, and God, we want your will to come to pass. And here they are having this prayer meeting. And take notice, please don't overlook, how these early believers, the Bible holds them out before us, exemplify the importance of prayer among the affairs of the early church. That we find them here. The first thing we find them doing from day one after Jesus' departure, from day one, what are they doing? Spending time in prayer together. It was part of their spiritual DNA as a church. That we see them coming together. You cannot read the book of Acts without taking note how high of a value prayer had. They did not rely on human efforts. You don't see sophisticated business programs or worldly resources. What you see is they sought God regularly for direction, for leading, for his help and power, for whatever was needed. Prayer was a major part of the activity and life of the early church. We're going to see in Acts 2 where it says there they devoted themselves to praying together. There was a commitment to it. There was a devotion. We must assemble to pray together. Now, let me just say, if I could, a few observations regarding prayer in these verses here as we see this. First of all, a couple things. Take note in our verses, verse 13 and 14 in this prayer meeting. This is the last time in the Bible that we see Mary, who we know gave birth to Jesus. The last time we see her in the Bible. And notice what she is doing. She is gathered with other believers praying, just like everyone else. In this scene, last time we see her in the Bible, no one is praying to Mary. No one is asking Mary for special favors if she could get favor for them with her son. We find no one praying to Mary. What we do find is Mary just praying like everybody else to God. And I say that, again, for biblical clarity to please take note, teaching people to pray to Mary is unbiblical. It dishonors Jesus because it's not necessary to pray to Mary and it doesn't work. It's not effective. 
It's an unsound thing to teach people. Prayer is to be directed to God. The last time you see Mary in the Bible, she's praying to God like everybody else. I think she'd feel ashamed if she knew people were praying to her. She's praying to God. Notice as well in our text the value, and we should esteem the value, of corporate prayer gatherings. I think as we look at this as a church today, wanting to see the pattern of Jesus' early followers, man, how valuable praying together is. Look, should we pray personally, privately? Absolutely, there's a place for that. But there's something very wonderful, is there not, about coming together in prayer? Gathering together, praying with other believers, joining our hearts and our requests. I think the Lord honors that. I think it's a unifying thing. I think something very powerful happens when God's people say, I don't just pray on my own, but I gather with my brothers and sisters and pray together. And finally, and I want to draw your attention to this because I think it is something helpful. Notice that as they prayed together, again, this statement, verse 14, it says they prayed in one accord. In one accord. Again, what's that idea? Harmony in spirit. Even as harmony in instruments and voices in a song, everybody's contributing. Remember we talked about that? But it all complements things moving in the same direction in the song. And this is a beautiful analogy. Because think about that. If during a song, one musician or singer just randomly started doing their own thing, it would what? It'd kind of make an awkward disconnect, right? Because we're all working in harmony here and then one person decides, I want a solo. That's a little awkward. You just like quenched the whole spirit of the song because you took a solo on there. It's not, see, it's not in harmony with what they were doing together in the music. Well, I think the same can happen, please hear me out here, when we pray together. When we pray together as believers coming together, when everyone's, for example, praying on a set matter or maybe we're directing our prayers towards a particular issue, and then all of a sudden, and listen, I'm not trying to be critical here. Please, please hear my heart. I don't mean this critically at all. I'm trying to be helpful in regards to praying effectively together as God's people. So we're all praying together about some issue or a particular thing, and we're trying to focus our prayers on something. And let's say we're praying for a specific situation for God to work in a ministry or maybe asking God to heal somebody. And then all of a sudden, one person says, and Lord, I just pray for my cousin Sally in Africa. They need a car. Look, that's not wrong. God heard the prayer, but it's kind of not in one accord. Do you see what I'm saying? With the harmony of what we're praying about. Here we're praying for this person for God to heal him. And two, three people pray for God to heal him. And they went, Lord, and I pray for cousin Bobby. I mean, he just, he really needs that car. And, and, and it's like, it's kind of an awkward disconnect. Do you see what I'm saying? It kind of throws the harmony out of trying to pray in one accord. Let me give an encouragement. When we try and pray specifically, for example, we're praying for something specifically, try and be sensitive to pray in one accord. For those of you who pray before the services, when we pray before the service, the whole purpose of prayer before the service, contrary to the prayer after the service, where we just kind of pray whatever God puts in our hearts, before the service, we're trying to pray what? That God would work during the worship meeting. So if we're trying to pray for God to work during the worship meeting before the service, and then all of a sudden, you know, one person begins again to just, you know, randomly pray, well, I have an Uncle Bob, and he's got a tumor, and, and I'm not, not wrong. He said, I mean, that's a wrong prayer. It's just not really in one accord. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, I say that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. 
Why would we want to miss praying in harmony and in agreement? Look, the point I'm trying to make is there's a difference between praying alone and praying together with other people. When we pray alone, we're just talking to God. We can pray all over the map, everywhere we want. God can follow us. But when we pray together, we want to try and be sensitive to the Holy Spirit leading our prayer meeting, praying short, direct, specific prayers that are in alignment with what we're all trying to pray about so that we can agree together in faith. And something very wonderful in value happens. You know, to perhaps today, maybe you are dealing with some changes, some transitions. I said at the beginning, concerns and uncertainty. Can I encourage you in light of this text? You know the best thing to do? Look up. Look up. Maybe you're dealing with some things, some challenges, concerns, some uncertainty. Look up. It's not going to last forever. Jesus is coming. And you can look up every day, every hour in prayer because he's at the right hand of the Father. And you can come confidently to the throne of grace. And he'll give you the grace you need for whatever it is you're navigating. Shall we stand together?